0: Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream, number one seventy-three Q and A segment. We are ready to uh, to go.
1: We are ready to go. If you're looking for more Q and As, because we are going to start dropping the number of Q and As um, by half, um, we have our private Q and As monthly uh, that you can get access to at my Patreon, and those are those feel different because there's a much smaller number of people uh, who are showing up live. And so we can actually engage with the chat and respond to it. Uh, so those are fun. And they're also uh, long, they're always two hours and th- these are an hour or less. Uh, and speaking of an hour or less, let's get started. Let's do it. Because it's been a little bit, uh, we've got actually two questions from the discord server this week. We always start with discord, uh, questions that the discord server people send over and we're going to do both of them. Yes, we are. Awesome. First question. Francine Shapiro was walking in the park when she realized that eye movements appeared to decrease the negative emotion associated with her own distressing memories, leading to the practice of EMDR for PTSD. I did not know that history. Uh -uh. Is it possible that hunter gatherers, regular scanning of their environments for food or threat helped minimize an obviously more traumatic world than the one we currently live in? I want to know more about this. This is, this is, fascinating and I wonder if for instance um you know one of the things that they say uh is that uh, if you're if you if you're feeling down uh exercise definitely exercise and I can't generalize this because I have never been able interested in or able to get interested in moving around a lot inside like in the gym and so for me when I feel like I just gotta get out of my own head I gotta get over myself whatever it is I'll go for a bike ride or kayaking or paddle boarding or um, even just a walk, right? Um, and those things, not a gym so much, not indoor environment, but those things um, would be providing exactly the kinds of um, fluctuating visual uh, uh, Im- uh, signals uh, that is being invoked here that apparently Francine Shapiro as the founder of EMDR um, Saw, and I wonder if that's not at least also a factor in, if not um, perhaps significantly a factor in, the reason that exercise, at least outdoors, does seem to help get people out of whatever anxious or dark or depressive mood that they're in.
0: Um, I, I'm on board with that, but I want to put a slightly different, uh, a slightly different perspective on this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The mind is a uh, a processor of information and presumably it is evolved to process information in a way that an ancestral environment would result to the computing power being dedicated to the things which were most likely to provide dividends either by increasing profits or decreasing losses. When one's mind is not processing visual information that processor is dedicated to other things we talked in our book about dreams for example Mm -hmm. dreams being a basically borrowing of the processors including the visual processor for scenario (coughs) excuse me scenario building
1: and interpreting past events
0: right both, both directions in time but all for the purpose presumably of arming you for a future Right? Past events may tell you that certain things can happen and you so you prepare for them. Future events that you can foresee loom large. So basically, I want to argue for some principle of the adaptive borrowing of perceptual machinery for processing of matters of opportunity or hazard. To the extent, for me, I can navigate our house in almost complete darkness right the tiniest bit of information a tiny bit of light emerging from a door or a glint off of a knob on the stove whatever it is is enough for me to orient and walk around that tells you is that walking around in our house even when it's flooded with light i don't need to process all of that right Mm -hmm. it's processed at some level but it's not a high level because i don't need it in order to know where i am so By extension, that means my mind is actually free to either imagine up cool stuff that might be profitable, but the opportunities to imagine up new stuff might pale in comparison to dwelling on uh, unrealized opportunities or dangers. Mm -hmm. So it may be that if you're prone to dwelling on those things, that an environment that you know well does nothing to fill your processor with stuff that it needs to work on and therefore leaves you idle to dwell on Exactly at the moment you feel
1: like, oh, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling like the outside world may be not safe, so I'm going to stay where I know. I'm going to stay in the familiar, which may actually exacerbate the problem. Exacerbate is the right. anxiety part of the problem. Whereas what you should be seeking is novelty, uh, where your brain actually has something that it needs, either needs or can. Think about like, oh, there's that. There's, oh, I haven't been here before. Um, and Interestingly, just anecdotally, I have on my um, organizational software a regular thing um, on a repeat uh periodicity of, I don't even know what it is, five, six days, um, go somewhere new. Mm-hmm. That's all it says. Just go somewhere new. And, you know, by walk, by bike, by kayak, just like be, go somewhere you have not been before. And uh, I don't know when I put that on there and for how long it's been there, but uh, every time it pops up, I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I should totally should. Uh, Cause it, it feel it feels healthy in every regard.
0: Yep. Feels healthy in every regard. And of course this hypothesis makes predictions about what, sorts of activities will be most effective at banishing those impulses to dwell on negative stuff Mm -hmm. you know like uh for example trail running Mm -hmm. ought to beat running on pavement Mm -hmm. right because it requires more attention to the
1: and i were literally talking about this this morning he you you don't know you were already running your patreon call this morning but Zach went for a run this morning and uh, began the first quarter of a mile on the road because we don't have a trail right outside our house and then was on trail. And then it was not a loop, but a there and back. So the last quarter mile again was not just on road, but the same road he'd been on, but the opposite direction. Um, Or no, actually you did turn into a loop somehow, didn't you? Um,
0: I didn't turn into a loop. I, it was like three and a half miles total, but a little bit at the end to get some extra mileage was on the road as well, but a bunch of it was trail.
1: Anyway, talk about your experience, um, the difference, the different experiences between the trail running and the road running.
0: I don't know. I haven't really done trail running before. Uh,
1: I don't know. It was nice. It distracted me from thinking about how unpleasant it is to run at some level. Right. Um, And so it was sort of nice. And when you're back on the road, it's your mind's very open. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's better for you. This is separate from the, the topic that we're directly trying to respond to, but... the trail running on trail is better for you for uh, a few physical reasons like physiological reasons Um, you know the the ground is more forgiving on your feet than um, asphalt or or um, concrete And, uh, also the inconsistencies, the fact that it's not just totally flat means that you have to respond to the environment you are in. And so your body is actually doing more and you're going to get more in shape by actually being responsive to, um, even, even just mildly undulating surface as opposed to one that is always exactly the same. So, you know, on a scale from like treadmill to road running to trail running, uh, trail running is going to be the one that you... Um, you know, are going to have to be the most conscious for, and you probably are not going to be able to, uh, take in a complex analytical lecture through your AirPods, um, while you're trail running to the degree that you could on the treadmill, uh, but you're going to have a much more integrative and, uh, more health enhancing experience.
0: Yep. Anyway, I, I think we've gotten there. Um, but I would say, uh a mind that is occupied with novel stuff that has to be processed is probably immune to or close to immune to dwelling on remote things and that our lives are, especially in light of COVID lockdowns and other stuff that mm. forced us not only into indoor environments but forced us into the same environment day after day, yeah. that those things were particularly likely to have the opposite effect.
1: Indeed yeah okay second question from discord this week uh, they say it's a question from the eighth round of book club that they did which is awesome they read a book called deep simplicity by john Gribbin. not a book that i know but i like the title deep simplicity question is if life did evolve on other planets would bipedal eyes forward structure be optimal on those planets in general would similar complex systems find similar solutions and this is this is a topic about which both you and I could go on about for a very long time. And we've we've answered some version of this question uh, before. Um, let me let me make a first step. Mm-hmm. We'll go back and forth a few times. Um, you asked specifically the Discord server asked specifically about uh, both bipedal and eyes forward structure, which is just it's called frontation when your eyes are both um, on the same plane, basically on the surface of your. Uh, head such that you can triangulate and get binocular vision as opposed to having a greater field of vision, um, but it's harder to perceive depth because um, for each of your eyes, you only have one eye on any particular prize that you're looking at, uh, whereas we have um, a lot behind our heads that we can't see, but what we can see is almost entirely um, perceivable with both of our eyes, thus we can track um, about, um, about how far it is and get a much better sense of position and, uh, and speed as well. Uh, so would that, you know, would, uh, if, if we start from if eyes, would frontation, uh, to say the idea to have binocular vision be something uh, that evolved in some organisms, yes. Uh, but, you know, if eyes, uh, are photons going to be useful in, uh, to sense your surrounding environment? Almost certainly. You know, could life evolve in a situation of total darkness in which there are other ways to sense things? I guess maybe. Uh, we don't know what that would look like. Um, but so assuming a world in which you have, um, you know, a non tidally locked planet and therefore there's night and day for everyone on the planet. And uh, generally uh, some organisms are optimized for dark, some for night, very occasionally for crepus- crepuscular, the, the dawn and dusk times. Uh, those organisms uh, that need to perceive distance quickly, uh, which is to say often predators of other organisms that move around, uh, will tend to end up having um, eyes forward-facing. Bipedality is is a bigger question, uh, because whereas photons are likely to be in abundance and free on um, just about any planet on which life can evolve, the advantage of bipedality are much more specific to the situation that we find ourselves in on this particular planet with our particular history of being uh first well first sea dwelling then land dwelling um then tree dwelling primates and then came back down to the land so we're you know we're secondarily terrestrial uh but we only emerged from the sea once but we went up our primate ancestors were all arboreal so uh we came down and then some of our ancestors presumably having come down we're still moving around in all fours and then at some point we we start to emerge we start to emerge as, as bipedal organisms why so is it so that we can carry things is it so that we can see higher over the grassland savannas in which we were mostly coming out of the trees and the forests into uh is it uh so that you know, there, those those are two of the two of the main hypotheses for why we ended up uh, going bipedal, and there were, of course, a number of other associated changes with the bipedal gait. Bipedality seems particular enough that it's not at all clear to me that another origin of even sentient, you know, highly sentient, conscious life would inherently be bipedal on a different planet with different considerations. That's a first pass.
0: Yeah, I would I would answer this. Similarly, I think. Um, photons are free in most of the circumstances that we would expect to see life, not all of them. I, I think it's perfectly plausible that you could evolve in a dark uh, situation and use something else. But, um, but I would expect, in a, the, the way I would do this is I would say, don't imagine some other place. Imagine that there are millions or billions of other places where life has evolved. Would we see bipedality often. Right. Would we see it more than half the time. Maybe not, mm-hmm. um, not in sentient creatures. But you know, we have multiple bipedal terrestrial creatures, right? Uh, the birds. We've got the birds. We've That's got one origin. Macropods, uh, uh, kangaroos, kangaroos and wallabies. And wallabies. Yeah. Yep. So the point is, bipedality bipedality works in certain creatures. We have kangaroo rats. We've got uh, you know they're
1: sort of facultatively bipedal. Right? Yeah,
0: but my point is, it shows up, and you have intermediates. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lagomorphs, rabbits, but uh, in all those are...
1: cases, it's from a quadrupedal um, source. Yeah. Right. So you've got um, in the biped and the bipedal organisms that you've just named, they're all tetrapods. They've yep. all they've all emerged from a, a deuterostome ancestor, which um, which has a which uh, are bilaterally symmetrical. You know, we have a left and a right. We we mostly neatly um, you can draw a line an axis down our middle and fold us in half, and we're more or less. Please um, don't. Mar- but- yeah, don't try this at home or anywhere else. No. Actually, um, unless you're a mortician, in which case I guess you're allowed to, but probably not. Um, but I actually wrote about this in the sea stars piece. Uh, you know, their their thing, echinoderms, is radial symmetry, and our thing is bilateral symmetry. And bilateral symmetry is, of course, not just a, a, a thing of of chordates, which is vertebrates plus a few other little things like tunicates. Um, insects have um, bilateral symmetry, but um, you know, cephalopods, squid, and octopuses don't have bilateral symmetry, and they're plenty smart. They're plenty sentient. So uh, bipedality. Wait wait, wait, wait,
0: wait, What? I'm struggling over you cephalopods not having bilateral symmetry. I'm mean, Yeah,
1: I'm not actually positive. They do.
0: They
1: well, do. ammonites. Don't.
0: They do. All right, we're going to okay. wrestle this to a... Yeah proper conclusion at some point offline and maybe but return even, to it but the
1: question doesn't ask about um you know well what would be optimal also is a little bit of a problem like what, what is optimal on the planet there's no answer to that well, you know we are we optimal are we the optimal form on this planet well we have become the dominant form on this planet but that doesn't mean that our form is what allowed us to become the dominant species on the planet right
0: there's, well there's, there are components of it, and this comes up in, in your discussion of bipedality, right? We are always looking for some answer like, oh, stood up to carry things or whatever, but...
1: I didn't mention a third really stupid hypothesis the anthropologists have. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, we went bipedal um, so that our backs didn't get sunburned really? because we'd lost our hair. Okay. Yeah, I've actually heard, I've had an anthropologist, and you might be able to imagine which one, argue that in front of a class to me.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I would say there is another possibility that's a little bit harder to wrestle to uh, a testable, testable uh, question. But that is in order to become what we were, our manual dexterity had to become much greater. That becomes possible at the point you're not walking on your hands. And so, is mm-hmm. there some interplay between you know the fact ah, is
1: it's a specialization move. Yeah. So we as bipeds don't have opposable toes. Right. All the other primates have opposable toes. Therefore, hands and feet are much more equivalent to one another.
0: Yeah, they're similar while not being identical. You know, right? They're or, not. Or identical, not even close.
1: But but they do very. They they can do a lot more with their feet than the, we can do with our feet. Yeah. um and
0: so in any case i don't you know toothed whales are very intelligent it's hard to imagine them ever doing to a globe what we've done to it because they in order to have flippers do not have the dexterity they don't their fingers aren't separate Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. which means that their ability to manipulate the world to test hypotheses things like that is reduced their ability to produce tech you know, the, the path to a, a whale having the capacity to do these things, even if it had the intelligence that would set it on that path, is a much more difficult road. So,
1: and I think um, it's Shark Bay in Australia. Uh, some of the dolphins, which are toothed whales, um, have adopted I'm not sure it's Shark Bay, but somewhere <clears throat> have adopted the habit of um, mounting sponges to their noses um, so that when they hunt sea urchins, they don't get um, jabbed by the urchin
0: poison. Interesting because. I thought that the explanation was the same one that has people putting lampshades on their heads at parties, which they're I'm not sure. are also drunk, yes. Right. Yes. Um, but that presumably has very little to do with sea urchins.
1: Probably, unless the sea urchins did something you know, mean to them and they're just drinking their, their sorrows away.
0: Oh, I suppose that's um, not very likely, but leave it in the realm of the possible. But in any case, uh, if you imagine millions of planets with life that reaches sentience, which is certainly the, you know, I think many of our expectation about a universe this large is that it would contain millions of, yes, millions is even a low number for yep. uh, living planets that would have attained sentience or will. Um, but would you find bipedality on many of them? I feel certain you would find it on many of them, many of the creatures. You mean it... among the sentient yeah. beings? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it would be a frequent thing. I think uh, visual orientation. But I
1: think that begins again from the quadrupedal expectation, right? So, if the progression that we have here, life emerges, originates in the sea. Uh, life emerges from the sea a few times in our lineage. It emerges in a, in a vertebrate form with uh, a single, you know, a, a single brain with a single line of central nervous system down the back and bilateral symmetry, bilateral symmetry, such that upon coming out, you have to deal with all the new things associated with gravity and different refractive indices of air versus water, all of this. Um, and that, you know, if, if that's what you're doing, if you've got like a quadrupedal form that is effectively, that is also, in the case of Earth, a tetrapod um, that has emerged onto land, and that that's the lineage that becomes sentient on another planet? Would bipedality end up being the th- sentient form in many of them? Yeah. But I don't but you know, why not radial symmetry as uh, the thing that becomes sentient? Why not um, aquatic creatures being the thing that becomes sentient? And you know, in neither of those cases do you expect bipedality to be uh, the form that the sentient beings adopt?
0: Well, my guess is there's a kind of very weak anthropic principle that we can use here, mm. right? The fact that a bipedal visually oriented creature attains sentience enough to travel into space um, means that that is at least one valid path there. Could a radially symmetrical creature travel such a path? Maybe, but what if it's 500 times more difficult, mm. right? then the point is you would see it occasionally, but you wouldn't see it very regularly. You'd be much more likely, especially if you effectively have, look, you have selection exploring design space. Right. A quadrupedal platform is not the only platform that can explore design space in the way that the tetrapods have, but it is a very effective and repurposable platform. So you would expect to see many such explorations. And the question is, would you expect to see in such an exploration a bipedal lineage be more likely to uh, attain technological capacity? I think so.
1: So I don't. I don't know that you would. And I guess I. I. I feel like the anthropic pr- principle makes a probabilistic error. Then that you know, well, this is the one we've got. Therefore, this is the one that is more likely. Um. So. It feels to me like, just as, just as in the tetrapod lineage, you have, um, invertebrates. you have sort of a relatively early split after the origin of bone into ray finned fishes and lobe fin fishes. Uh, and lobe finned fishes, which includes coelacants and lungfish and all of the tetrapods, uh, you have over time a reduction of the number of digits. And so some extant, that is to say, still living on the planet, uh, members of that clade have like eight digits, and then we get a reduction, and you know you get to like a horse with one remaining uh-huh. digit, right? Um, so there is, of course, room to say, okay, well, how like how many things is the right number? And over in radial symmetry land, just in the example that we happen to know, because this is where we live. Uh, among the sea stars among the starfish you have a um, number of arms ranging from five to 50 so that same kind of uh, developmental plasticity well in the case of sea stars it seems to usually be species level differences but yep. to some degree developmental plasticity um, it seems like that could be extraordinarily useful in a uh, sentient organism to you know if, if uh, you know it's, how many times have you wanted more than two of these to do what you're trying to do and to be able to reach behind you and you know in, in living in more more spatial axes than we we do live in.
0: Well, I want I want to take issue with one thing. It's it's probably it's it's too subtle to really pursue it, but the question of whether or not the anthropic principle applied to such a question is statistically invalid. Again, I said it's a very weak form because we could be a very unusual sentient creature. That's always possible. You could be the only one that is bipedal in the whole universe because it was a very difficult route and we took it and we wouldn't know that because we haven't seen any other examples. However, let's say that an alien species had a transporter and it transported exactly one person at random off the earth, okay? What are the chances that that person has a height that is somewhere near the average? Pretty high. What is the chances that that person's height is exactly average? Zero. So there is a weak ability to infer, a weak but not non-existent ability. It's not zero. No, the chances that their height is exactly equal actually is zero. Nobody's height is exactly.
1: That's not what I was responding to. That's not what you said.
0: But the chances that
1: what we look like looks like nothing else in the universe are low, but not zero.
0: Right. Not zero. Yeah, uh, sorry. I thought you were responding to a different different point. Chances are not zero. And if you picked one person at random, although they would be average in exactly no way, it'd mm-hmm. probably not a single characteristic that they're truly indistinguishable from the average. Mm-hmm. But the chances that you would, you know, you'd be 50-50 on sex, right? There is no average sex. There are two sexes, so you'd have information on one and not the other. You might be able to infer the other. Um, But in every other regard, you would have information of a noisy kind about intelligence, you know, what if you... Uh, selected somebody at random who was severely mentally disabled, right? You happen to pick a person that, you know, in cog- cognitive failure at the end of their life, not representative. But the chances that you would do, reach such a person are low. So anyway, there, there'd be a smattering. I'm not sure
1: what what we're setting up here. I'm so not my, sure what I'm going to end up having my to respond to. My
0: point is the individual as representative of the species is not a different puzzle than our... Version of sentience evolving in a. I don't think
1: that's. I don't agree with that. Um, I don't. I don't. Again, I don't think that it's zero because the universe does have some universal laws, right? But even, and I would have to go back and look at the research I was doing when I was working on science fiction. But um, you know, even the type of star um, that the planet that the life has evolved in is around and therefore uh, the the frequencies, the 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 you know, the abundance, the temperature range, uh, the you know, is 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 it carbon-based life, right? Or is it silicon-based life? Like there there are just so many things that render life here versus life elsewhere in the universe much more different potentially than one individual versus another individual from the same species on the same instantiation of sent- the evolution of sentient life on this planet?
0: Um, no, I think I think that that is actually looking at it the wrong way. Okay, how? Because, yes, there are many differences. Could be carbon, could be silicon. Don't know which one would be more common, but it's not an infinite diversity that, on which you could build a platform of life that would look like Earth life. So the ability to work backwards... Well, why does it have to look like Earth life? It doesn't. But... I mean,
1: this is like, so if, if we're constrained to it looks like Earth life, then that seems like a
0: cheat. No. You know, is it possible to have life in a state of plasma, right, where you do not have elements having coalesced, mm-hmm. for example? Probably not. Am I ruling it out? Do I think I know enough? No. But my point is we do know that you can get life in a universe that is, you know, rich with chemical elements and mm. sufficiently cool and all of that. We know you can get it on a planet that isn't tidally locked. Uh, we don't know for sure what happens if you bake the hell out of one side of a planet and leave the other in total darkness. That's an interesting thought experiment. But it's we do know that on a planet that rotates and provides a balance, you, you do get... Uh, certain forms evolving. So anyway, all I'm saying is that the amount of information that a single individual provides about the species Homo sapiens is considerable, but there, you could imagine many places where extrapolating from a single individual would lead you into a cul-de-sac. So it's low-quality information, but it's significant information. I'm inferring that in a universe full of different evolutions of life, in which some of those evolutions produce something sentient, that a single individual has the same characteristic, an evolution of life...
1: What characteristic?
0: That it tells you some things about how life... Oh, the same...
1: So a single individual from a species of sentient life on some other planet should similarly provide an indication albeit imperfect of what the whole species is like
0: right and the way that that is most useful is that we can say what are the chances that we are an average platform for sentience Substantial.
1: but that's to me that's that's a leap there so individuals representing species imperfectly yes here elsewhere yes therefore an example here uh you can use to infer what it likely looks like there I am not as compelled
0: by. Well, again, I'm, I'm projecting onto a universe of examples that we will never see. Yeah, unfortunately. And no, I don't think unfortunately. The question is... You don't want to see them? No. Oh, <laughs> yes. I very much want to see them uh, immediately if possible. And I have questions um, for them. So hopefully do they? Uh, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And no doubt they would. But all, my only point is the chances that our path to... Uh, sentience was particularly convoluted or low the chances that it's something like the average path is relatively high
1: yes i just don't there's there's so many steps i mean you you know this right, as, well as not... anyone so um it, you know if every even if every step if every step there were a thousand possibilities and Five hundred of those are kind of near the middle, and e- even I mean, let's just like e- even if it's just a hundred that are like more likely than not, and every single time we went with one of those middle hundred, that's still so like you take that one or that one, and now you're like you, no no you just go so far I, again. Apart, I, I so think bad.
0: I think the logic is incorrect. Work this way, and I get it, right? I mean, I
1: so I have not it's... yet heard the counter argument.
0: Okay, can we rule out? sentient plants no we can't no are there am i expecting them no no i'm really not i'm
1: so disappointed in this question well i know but (laughs) but my point is Mm -hmm. is it
0: safe to rule out sentient plants no nope Mm -hmm. on the other hand uh would i be right to be surprised as i ran into them elsewhere in the universe? I would be right to be surprised but, because I mean, I, there are logical reasons to say that that actually was a branch not particularly likely to generate sentience.
1: But the original question, which yeah. also incidentally didn't talk about sentience, but like we've turned we've moved into a sentience question,
0: specifically
1: mentions two characteristics. Frontation, yep. like binocular vision and bipedality. Yep. And in my initial foray into answering it, I did separate those and said, well, you know, given you know, yes, it's possible. It could be deep sea. It could be tidally locked. You could be like, you know, whatever. Maybe no photons, but given the ubiquity and freeness of photons, probably photons. In which case, frontation, yes, almost. Yep. You know, Very often. I won't say almost certainly, but very often. Whereas bipedality um, has a lot more contingencies that happen before you end up having that be a useful form.
0: Yep, I I, I agree. With, I agree with your hierarchy,
1: right? I think. And I mean, this is like. You, you know, like this is, this is one of the things that I used to do in my vertebrate Evolution program. It's like my final big, exi- like, it's like, okay, I've got 12 characteristics that have evolved on this planet. In a rerun from history, we're starting at 500 million years ago. I want you to, prior- like, you tell me and you know, use everything at your disposal to argue for your, ca- argue your case. Which one of these things, like the 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 likelihood that each one of these things would actually re-evolve in a rerunning of history right. from a starting point 500 million years ago, like base base vertebrate, right? And it included everything from lungs and feathers to written language. Written language is an easy one; it's always last, right? Um, and on on this list, but you know, how how do you prioritize things that in this running of history? Are contingent on one another right but aren't necessarily contingent on one another and it could have easily happened um separately like i mean th- i think it's a super fun game but i don't i don't think given that there is a difference at, you know even just between like binocular vision frontation and bipedality i'm i can't imagine why we imagine um that the sentient aliens out there um on average kind of look like us
0: Well, I'm not saying that they do. I'm saying that you can infer something about the potential of different pathways and the ability to, you know, for you and me to look at things like plants and say, uh, you know, we don't really expect uh, highly mobile photosynthetic animals because it doesn't work. And we don't really expect plants to develop sentience because it doesn't pay uh yeah what's it doing for
1: them right What what problem is it solving and
0: if i did that over a thousand different questions would i expect to be wrong some fraction of the time yes but i would expect to be well above random at the ability to say that's gonna you know uh birds are gonna have a despite bipedality birds are gonna have a hard time developing technology because their wings don't lend themselves to become uh very dexterous in the manipulation of objects like like flippers
1: right but on a different planet perhaps uh the uh early equivalent of land vertebrates have three pairs of legs instead of two and then they get to be the you know like the the angels right which have somehow three pairs of appendages arms and wings and legs right so maybe 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 on a different planet yeah. birds oh. do become the tool users because they're actually working with an additional set of limbs that is,
0: that is well there's within n- the realm there's of possibility
1: nothing in um in anything that i have imagined that says oh well that now nah, that wouldn't happen like why not why why two sets instead of three no I'm not insights that, are doing it
0: i don't necessarily see any reason to expect two sets versus three because for one thing we've seen an even more successful radiation that has three sets so we know that radiations with three sets can explore a large amount of design space and it you know it just so happens to be uh, arthropods who had some other uh, pieces of the deck stacked against their sentience um you know exoskeletons and things that probably do not uh properly fit with uh, extremely long lifespans and things like that i
1: wonder about complete metamorphosis as well yeah. I wonder if, if, if a complete reconfiguring of all of your body tissues as you become an adult um, doesn't effectively uh, limit the value of a long childhood.
0: Yeah, it means that the developmental pattern uh, is unlikely to discover something in which you have a second pattern, a second uh, mode of inheritance, things like that. Yeah. Anyway, I just don't think that uh, as somebody who's spent a lot of time thinking about design space and how selection explores it, it's an impossibly complex puzzle that is much less complex than a completely free canvas
1: and it's not a completely free canvas but i'm not um i think we have both thought about things related to this from actually surprisingly different uh viewpoints from 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 standing in different places and uh i am i am not compelled um by what i hear as your argument uh, that uh, because each of these decisions, each of these things that ended up evolving happened here, and there were reasons that they did, and that the other, the other choices, choices of the wrong language here, but the other things that, that evolved have long since disappeared, that is very particular, as you know, not just to the particular space and time in which it happened, um, but the long history on which it was building. And uh, the you know, just the number of you know lungs seem inevitable. In our running of or in our running of history, lungs evolved. Um, l- lungs evolved and were kind of in use um, before the thing that for a long time we thought they evolved from the swim bladders of actinop- of, of ray finned fishes. Like it looks to us like well they they've been in the water forever and so you know we must have you know we must have just co-opted that it's like no somehow there were lungs already like nascent in these water breathing gill having organisms super surprising what like we don't as far as I know I haven't looked at the literature in a few years but like we don't have, really have a good idea of what that what that was about like why that was there why that was retained. For a long time, without having obvious functionality, and then uh, and then sort of bursts into two very different things that are homologous with one another, that are like the same organ but doing very different object, d- doing very different functions on land and water. G- given how many of those stories we know about this planet, there have to be just as many stories on any other planet where life, where complex life oh. has evolved
0: believe me i have no doubt that every evolution of life would be completely surprising one thing after another but there would also be many many patterns which you would get used to seeing repeatedly and i would just point to another example a i want to put a principle on the table here the principle is that once you have some clade of creatures exploring design space with some adaptation that it reduces the chances of a second clade discovering that thing because that second clade will have a very hard time competing with the first clade that has an advantage but not
1: between planets
0: no i'm not there yet my point would be let's take uh image forming eyes Mm -hmm. of which we have three examples on earth right we have the uh, vertebrate example we have the cephalopod example and we have the insect example
1: are you sure that cephalopods and... Yeah. Yeah. Separate separate, evolution separate evolutions. Separate
0: evolutions. Three image-forming eyes, mm-hmm. which function yep. very much similarly, we now understand. There are some advantages to the cephalopod eye. The vertebrate eye is inverted and has a, a blind spot that is a defect. But nonetheless, the point is, how the thing works is shockingly similar in spite of the fact that you had clearly two of those three being explored by adaptive evolution in a world that already had one. So my, but my point is image forming eyes are so useful.
1: But it had one, but it wasn't, that one wasn't available. Like the early vertebrates didn't have access to a cephalopod eye. Right,
0: and... Uh, they, the question is, why in that world? Were there niches sufficiently different that the fact that some clade was already exploring with image-forming eyes did not mean that it was simply going to outcompete compete any uh, vertebrate ancestor that developed an eye, for example. So anyway, my point is, the fact of selection repeating itself with both convergent evolution and parallelisms is um such a common pattern and happens with such regularity and surprising convergence on detail that it speaks to a constrained design space okay
1: i i think i know where we're disagreeing then okay um because on eyes and even on frontation, which is a is which is a more precise version of eyes and what you can do with them, uh, I think we're in agreement. I'd, it's fascinating that they picked these two examples for this question, right? With regard to bipedality, the the utility of bipedality is so contingent, not just on the landscape in which you move, but also the. Bow plan on which you are evolving from, uh-huh. the bow plan from which you are evolving. And there are a number of, of bow plans um, that organisms can evolve from that are highly functional and that could still allow them to manipulate tools and be social and all of these things. And there are also a lot of uh, media in which uh, sentient organisms might be uh, moving around their landscape where bipedality would not necessarily be the right thing. So um, I, you know, you and I do not disagree about the, you know, the power of convergence, yeah. <laughs> the power of selection, the power of convergence. Uh, I think we are disagreeing at actually a fairly trivial level about, you know, because, because the part of this that I've spent a very lot of time talking, thinking about is what kinds of things would actually always happen every single time and therefore you have to put them right up at the top of the list even if they don't seem important to you yeah because they would just always happen no matter what
0: yeah
1: um now in my you know in the exam in the take home exam that i would always give to my students it was a rerunning of life on earth yeah and so things i do think that things are potentially quite different on other planets um but there are other things that wouldn't necessarily evolve and so you know to some degree this may be uninteresting to us but seem really interesting to other people where if i say well feathers might not evolve yeah but flight will, mm. flight, will evolve, flight will evolve right in, 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 in on a on a planet with an atmosphere where life is evolving where you know therefore you know where therefore there was enough like resistance in the air that flight could work yep. flight will evolve but it isn't necessarily with something that we might recognize as feathers right
0: right oh yeah totally totally agree and i totally agree that the frontation of the eyes is much more likely to be seen as a regular pattern among sentient creatures than bipedality bipedality seems much more arbitrary and in fact bipedality is kind of a bad bowel plan as it is right yeah we're not doing it very well it's birds birds are,
1: birds are rocking it yeah, better it's, than we it's are. it's
0: fraught with hazards um And so it may be that that's actually a hint about what it is, that what else we were, you know, our our dexterity with our hands was worth the cost of becoming a quadruped that stood up on two legs and dealt with the problem. Well, at least our backs aren't burned. I mean, we do have that going for us. (laughs) Right. Um, Anyway, I I think we've got Oh,
1: navigating through shallow waters is another another thing that's proposed for, um, so like aquatic ape. The, the smart version of the aquatic ape hypothesis for why we went bipedal. Okay. That you have, for instance, baboons in the Okavango Delta in Botswana. Um, sometimes actually with babies on their, on their tummies as the mothers swim between islands during the flooded season, actually the babies will drown. Like it's crazy, but this is, um, Cheney and Saifarth doing their amazing work. who have reported like th- they actually do this. Like somehow they forget that the baby can't breathe when it's underwater. Um, so, you know, walking upright allows you to go through deeper water and, um, mm. potentially not drown your baby, yep. for instance. All right. That was fun. Yeah, all yeah. Right. Um, let's see, uh, that was like most of the time we have. So we're going to get to, we're going to get through some questions. It was awesome. In my opinion. Yeah, that was fun. Okay. Um. Will you guys be doing Unity 2024? Have you considered? Uh RKJ. I'm thinking they mean RJ R F. Wait, no. Junior. RKJ. What's RKJ? I'm gonna assume you mean RFK Junior? RKJ, oh, maybe it's Robert Kennedy Jr. That's what that means. Okay, I'm going to start over. Will you guys be doing Unity 2020? mm, I'm going to start over third time. Take three. Will you guys be doing Unity 2024? Have you considered Kennedy, Vivek, and Dave Smith for a 24-year run? Love you guys.
0: I haven't considered that exact grouping, but yeah, everything's on the table. We have uh, the duopoly. Shipping up to deliver us a rerun of one of the great electoral horrors of (laughs) our lifetime and any other.
1: No one thought that was fun.
0: No, it wasn't fun. It's not a good idea that they do it again. I do think that um, the duopoly, let's put it this way, no one's smarter about being stupid than the duopoly. And the idea that it could deliver us. That same insane matchup with so much more even at stake at this point in history will not surprise me in the least. Um, And the question really is, uh, are the disaffected folks who so frequently are fed up and do not vote because they're sick of Mm losing— Do they wake up and realize that they have the power to turn this entire story on its head if they will just get over the uh, reasonable-sounding but flawed logic that has them sidelining themselves for elections? If so, there's all sorts of stuff to be done, and if not, we're cooked, so get used to it. Anyway, I'm talking to you disaffected people. you got to vote, even if you're voting for something that can't win.
1: Brett's Yudkowsky tweet is frustrating. I worry your model is off. Carl Friston, Joshua Bach, Paul Cristiano, Connor Leahy are great inroads. I don't know anything about this.
0: Um, Yudkowsky had a discussion in which he proposed a scenario for... AI ordering up some viruses that are highly contagious so they get spread around the globe with barely anybody noticing and they cause the person who has had the virus to suddenly become uh, slave-like and devoted to the AI upon the playing of a certain tone or some such thing. The degree... To which that scenario reveals an evolutionarily undisciplined mind is incredible. I am not arguing that we do not have to worry about malevolent AI or misaligned AI. I'm not arguing that. What I'm arguing is that at the point that Yudkowsky does not know that he is spouting biological nonsense that he may indeed be trying to alert us to a real danger that is immediate and that we must respond to, but that he, he is doing harm to that cause by being undisciplined in this way, that is alarming. So I don't want us to underrate the danger of misalignment plus malevolence, or if that's two kinds of misalignment, so be it. What I want is the folks who don't get the biological part of it to recognize it and say, we don't know what exactly an AGI could order up from one of the places that you can order biologically sequenced stuff, right? The idea that it is going to produce um, novel biota that is going to embarrass natural selection Right? This is a dead end. It's a dead end when people have tried it before. It's going to be a dead end if the AGI tries it. The AI is constrained to the same biological logic that creatures are. Now, I'm not arguing. There's no hazard there. I'm arguing that the one that Yudkowsky chose to throw off as if here is one of an infinite number of possibilities that could happen, if you say here is one of an infinite number of possibilities that could happen, the thing you say next damn well better be something that could happen. Right? Just make it plausible. It doesn't have to be Mm -hmm. so elaborate that you don't have to get an A in the class. You just have to demonstrate that something fits in that spot. And so anyway, um, that's pretty much the end of my rant. Don't just invent nonsense and imagine that because biology looks chaotic to you that anything can happen because it can't.
1: Okay, a couple more AI um, questions while you're on the topic. Okay. Eric Weinstein often talks about the twin nuclei problem. Could AI be the third member of the Trinity? Could a sentient AI be able to then destroy life and then recreate it in its image? I just don't know enough about twin nuclei problem to to go there at all. Well, the twin nuclei problem is Eric's
0: description for unlocking the uh, atomic nucleus um, with nuclear tech and the biological nucleus with insight into DNA. Oh, okay. it's a certainly a very uh clever, insightful way of looking at it, and yes, this is the moment at which humans become so thoroughly in charge of our own fate that uh, it changes everything from a past in which a population could make a dumb error and go extinct and not threaten the whole human project right so that's the error we live in and it's a, it's a good description yes, this
1: did you just say that's the error we live in <laughs>
0: not what I said. (laughs) It may be what I said. It's not when I sent the messages Mm. to the muscles. That's Mm -hmm. not what I intended to say. Um, But yeah, AGI, I don't know that it's a, you know, unfortunately for the branding, it's not a nucleus. So, you know, we're going to have to stretch to fit it into that rubric in order that it's still uh, linguistically efficient and clever. Mm -hmm. Um, But from every other perspective, yeah, this is this is another place where we have invited a whole new level of hazard to the human project without sufficient preparedness for our now godlike capacity. Um, and the... You know, I, I'm less worried that the AI is going to decide, hey, this is a gorgeous planet and it can be ours if we can get rid of life, so let's do it. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I don't find that especially likely but I don't think you need that in order to see the other hazards, so.
1: So one more AI question. And I just, okay. I wanna get through yep. a few of these since we have to go soon. We only, we barely began to get into the questions here. On topic of AI, maybe it could be possible to institute a stenographic key in all AI-generated material that when analyzed could identify its source as AI-generated. Thoughts, question mark.
0: Yeah, the problem with all such answers is they can be jailbroken and the if anyone
1: can jailbreak it, it's gonna be yeah, the, right, exactly.
0: And you know, we've already seen this. It's child's play to get the thing to find its way out. And in fact, I'm unfamiliar with the particulars of the experiment. In fact, I think Yudkowski may not have shared them. But there's some uh story circulating in uh AI X risk communities about Um, Yudkowsky demonstrating that he could talk a human into letting an AI out of its prison, you know, that he could basically play on human compassion to get a person to do the AI's bidding to get it out of the sandbox. So um, I think that is a matter of, they already let the damn horses out of the barn. Mm -hmm. Um, And, to the extent that what you do is you constrain AIs to confess who generated what, then you provide an advantage to any AI that escapes and shackle the others. So I don't think the actual solution is down that road. I do think there are solutions to this problem, not perfect ones. Um, But anyway, I, I uh, I have tried to get the attention of some folks who have prominence in this community about solutions of a more biological nature that I think are worth thinking about. But that's about all I want to say. Okay.
1: Uh, Scott Adams made a hoax list regarding Trump. Is there a list of lies about COVID and current mainstream status of the truth? Like lab leak. I don't know of one. I did a... uh, This isn't it, but I have a number of... Two and a half months ago, February twenty eighth, my natural selections piece was apparently we're the bad guys or don't ask permission to speak, and I have basically a bulleted list of things uh, in here that we said during the pandemic. I didn't ex- I didn't expect this to hit so big as it did, it, it, it it's so it's so people really liked this and I was not trying to be thorough I was almost off the top of my head like what else did we say and where were we wrong where were we right um but this is um and at least a start on a list of things uh in that we were saying that we're opposite of what the mainstream narrative was saying and uh we have been vindicated um, by uh, if even if not yet in the public eye, um, in some cases clearly by the science and the uh, empirical evidence, but um, I don't know of such a resource. Zach, if you could give me my screen back so I could go back to the question. Um, yeah, current mainstream science. I don't. I mean, I, w- I wish there was such a resource, but it would be a devil to maintain. It would be, you know, somewhat simple to create, but then to maintain it uh, would be tough.
0: So, what exactly? I didn't see Scott Adams' list of whatever it was. I don't know. It was
1: made a hoax list regarding Trump, is what it says.
0: So these are hoaxes that were perpetrated about Trump, like you like said, it. injecting yourself with bleach, stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Is there a list of lies about COVID and current mainstream status of the truth, like lab leak? Um, and you know, er- earlier, you know, sometime between. Uh, three years ago, and now I occasionally got sent um, little like video amalgams of um, here are things that uh, you know Biden and Psaki when she was the press secretary and Fauci said, and you know over and over and over again. Now we're being told no one ever said that, right? Oh, vaccines stop transmission. Oh, they, right. Um, so there, are, I've seen little bits of these, but um, I've never seen it collated in one place.
0: Yeah, I actually think it would be a good idea, and I'm wondering if there's not a way uh, to crowdsource it, right? You know, something proposes, here here were lies that were told, uh, provide a source, and then provide a modern source that shows the delta. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I think think it would be worthwhile because this is the kind of thing, it's, I don't know, I was looking at a... um, Um, a video compilation of uh, places where the unvaccinated were being demonized and threatened recently, and I was shocked, even though it was only a couple years back, at how uh, vivid and aggressive and uh, nasty these claims were. And so anyway, the point is, time is moving so quickly now that it's hard to even remember what that era was like, even though it was effectively yesterday. So I do think such a list would be useful.
1: My mother was recently scolded by a junco while pruning blackberries in her garden. Turns out they're nesting at the base of a big ceramic planter. We see and hear hungry mouths. Yeah, it's the time of year for uh, mama and daddy birds to scold the people who stray too close to their nests. That's Mm -hmm. cool. Is there a correlation between pathologies associated with consanguinity and the and that is to say inbreeding, uh, mating between close relatives, and the repression of homosexuality in different that is to say non-modern societies? I'd never thought to put those two things next to each other before, and I don't nothing.
0: I'm not sure I understand the question.
1: Is there a correlation between pathologies associated with consanguinity and the repression of homosexuality?
0: I I don't think so, but I'm gonna have to think through it because I don't think so either neighborhood that are interrelated.
1: Just a few questions that I at least have no really no ability to respond to. What do you think about the hepatitis C medication? I have no idea. Don't know. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with organ chips? They sound promising for personal drug testing. And the link that they give. So hard to get links off of this. Uh, Is at Harvard slash technology slash human organs on chips.
0: So the word organ is throwing me. Yeah. If they're talking about these chips in which you can effectively expose an array of something to um, some substrate and see which quadrants light up. Yep. I've seen technologies like that, and I don't see in principle why there's any reason you couldn't build one that would tell you whether a particular person was compatible with a particular drug. So in principle, that sounds reasonable.
1: Mimicking human organs in vitro, enabling faster, better, and cheaper drug development and insights into human health.
0: Oh. Um, ah, that's slightly different.
1: Yeah. Microfluidic devices lined with living human cells for drug development, disease modeling, and personalized medicine. I've never heard of this before. Um,
0: I think I know what I think. I would say this is effectively like a sophisticated computer model.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And what I don't want to see is somebody decide that what happens on the chip is what will happen in a living organism. Right. I would want this to accelerate the process by which we figure out what might not be safe yeah, and yeah, yeah. allow us to target experiments more accurately yes
1: don't mistake the chip for the in vivo experience of of what it is but um if if the arrogance can be kept at bay and an understanding of both trade-offs and evolution uh be persistent throughout the research there's potential here
0: yep sure Uh,
1: let's see okay let's get uh, a couple more before we go um Okay, two more. How does one balance a love of dogs and the outdoors with a rational fear of ticks? Um. You know, we don't, we are lucky to live in a place without much in the way of ticks. Uh, um, and I, I have wondered this. It's been a long time since you or I were on the East Coast, lived on the East Coast or or the Midwest. Um, I mean, it's gonna it's gonna depend on your particular situation, your particular environment, you know, where the ticks are, how common they are, whether or not they are seasonal, whether or not they have circadian cycles, uh, you know, whether or not they really don't get into um, skin if you are well sealed, you know, if your clothes are well sealed. Uh, all that, you know, the ectoparasites are not just a just a single thing it's like oh it just you know in order to avoid ticks you must do x it's going to be different depending on the particular situation but um you know my bias is you've figured out of course you get outside and you, you get your dog outside but uh dogs of course are not going to be well suited to being um ha- have it explained to them how to avoid the ticks in your area Mm-mm.
0: yeah, yeah I, would, I would say personally there's probably some Best approach with clothing, you know, it might be that a brimmed hat keeps them off to some extent. And what well are they sealed. falling?
1: Are they yeah, falling on you?
0: Out of trees and things. Mm. Um, keeping them off your dog is a second thing. It's, of course, in some sense, less important. Dogs being shorter lived and not people, but it's still important. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, and you got to spend a long time checking both you and your dog when you come in.
0: That's what I was going to say is that. In addition to preparing well for going outside and knowing whether or not you're in a ticky location or a ticky moment in the year or both. um, Vigilance when you get back and a thorough check to make sure that you in particular don't have something Mm -hmm. brewing on your scalp or wherever is going to be key. Mm. Um, And the dog will
1: love it. You go through the entire dog looking for ticks. Totally. Three scratches.
0: The dog will love it. The ticks will not. That's okay. Well, in fact, I would say it's good. The only good tick is a nervous tick.
1: Did you send in this question?
0: <laughs> no, I did not. But thank you to whoever did.
1: Thanks, Isabella. Great. Okay, final question. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this person's name correctly, but I think most viewers and listeners will recognize who we are talking about. What are your thoughts on Elon Musk's hire for the Twitter CEO, Linda Yaccarino?
0: Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, A couple things to say here. One, by the numbers, this is a terrible choice from the point of view of Twitter's well-being, I think. And from the point of view of Twitter's credibility in the eyes of those of us like me who have championed this as a potentially important uh, step in the direction of a free speech platform that uh, you know zero is a special number is an important concept and this seemed like a departure from zero. That said, I do think that the right approach is to give Linda Iacarino The ability to surprise us. I'm ready to be surprised. I'm most concerned about her association with WEF, which is, of course, a huge red flag for many of us. Um, I'm also concerned about her overt stance on COVID measures. I will say, I did, it happens that we know somebody who knows her, Mm -hmm. somebody who has worked. At nbc still works at nbc and is a prominent covid dissident who retained their job through the pandemic in spite of being a prominent covid activist in fact mm-hmm. and that that is apparently not the only story from inside nbc where people who departed from the conventional wisdom survived there in a way that people did not survive in other similar locations so there's a possibility that uh, Linda Iaccarino is mercenary, but behind the scenes has um, protected people who stood up. I don't know, but that is at least a possibility. I don't know what you do about the World Economic Forum connection. That is such a toxic organization that I don't know how you would ever know that somebody was free of it. And if they're not free of it, I don't know what happens when they come through the door of Twitter in the position of CEO. That yeah. seems very dangerous. But nonetheless, again, I do think uh, being open to being pleasantly surprised is, is the right approach. But I won't be surprised if this goes bad quickly and uh, she's out and it gets uh, changed, somebody else gets put in that role.
1: Well, I haven't done much looking, um, but I did just look at her timeline on Twitter because if she's going to be the next CEO of Twitter, her timeline on Twitter would seem to be, um, something to look at. And I might've thought that it would have a lot of new things since, um, she became aware of what, um, what her new job was going to be. Um, but I can't say I'm impressed. Zach, if you would show, um... This is not, it seems to me, entirely um, unrepresentative piece. This is from, you know, a few days ago. Um, This is a retweet from, you know, Peacock, which I guess is about NBC, getting all my Kentucky Derby hat inspo from these ladies with pictures of women in stupid hats at the Kentucky Derby and just looking like the apparently the Real Housewives of Orange County. Uh, some of these outfits could have worked at the Met Gala, she says. So to me, this does not look like a serious human being. Maybe this is just her, you know, the one thing that she does for fun. She likes hats. She likes to think about fashion. I don't know. Um, But it feels to me like we are in a world of, um, God, such regressive gender roles. Mm. Like, how, how is it that we simultaneously have, dylan mulvaney parading around pretending to be a woman uh and um half the country is going like yeah you go girl and the new ceo of what's supposed to be like the free speech platform but i'm not seeing it um who's tweeting these ridiculous regressive stupid pictures Um, from, you know, she also has tweeted like, it looks like she actually cares about the Kentucky Derby and and there was a, the winner this year was a 38 to one odds against cool. Interesting. Right. But the hat and fashion garbage is absurd. And, uh, you know, if she comes in, and one of the first things she does, for instance, and you know, I've said it before, but you know, is is takes off the censorship on Substack that Twitter is now engaging in and no one is admitting or talking about, but it's just patently clear uh, that you can no longer basically shunt people to Substack through Twitter, um, unless they are really, really driven to do so because they don't show up as, as good embedded, they don't embed, um, they don't embed anymore, right? Um, I don't know why we're talking about it as a free speech platform at the moment, frankly, because it, it looks petty and um and ridiculous and if the new CEO is more interested in stupid hats than in um not engaging in censorship, I you know, I'm not impressed.
0: Yep. Well, uh I can't imagine that this was done without
1: there was a great considerable deal, thought put considerable into it. Considerable thought, so, which makes we, the paradox. I hope we are it, surprised.
0: I hope we are surprised. Absolutely. And I also just have to say it is very easy for those of us on the outside not to understand the full dimensionality of the problem of doing what Elon appears to be trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so the point is if we're looking at four trade-offs and he's looking at 20, sure. Right we may not understand why this move made sense. I find it hard to imagine that anything in that basket of things that we business normies can't intuit overcomes an active connection with the World uh, Economic Forum, Mm -hmm. It's just hard to imagine. But who knows what we don't know?
1: Who knows what we don't know? I hope we find out. Yep. All right, we'll be back again next week uh before then brett's got a conversation happening on patreon tomorrow consider joining him there uh, you can get access to the discord server and uh and talk about all sorts of things including um future questions you'd like to see us address as we do at the top of this hour uh, on the discord server at either of our patreons and um just in general there's a lot of places to find us go looking do subscribe like share any content that you see that uh, you think is share-worthy. And until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside.
0: Be well, everyone.